thank you that you had Paul write in the book of Romans in the form of a question what could separate us from the love of God and the answer the conclusion that Paul comes to is nothing thank you Lord that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit, you've called us ours, yours. Thank you that your word says that you hold us in your hands and nothing can snatch us out of your hands, Lord. Lord, may we rest in that truth this morning. May we take comfort the security that we have in your love.
Amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat. Uh, kids, you're um, free to be released to your classrooms. And uh, Chris is going to be up with announcements here. I said about Bengals, forget about it. Forget about it. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Chris and one of the pastors here. And thank you to Nick and Summer for leading us in worship. And um, worship is the most important thing that we do. And whether it's worship through song or worship through response to the message or worship through giving and through prayer. When the Jews came back from exile into their homeland, the first thing they did was to rebuild the altar so that they could worship. Everything else about the life of that community revolved around worship. And so that really is our, the primary reason, the main reason we gather is to encounter God through his Holy Spirit and to respond with adoration, to respond with worship to him. And that's what our gathering is truly all about. Well, I want to welcome all of you today, and especially any of you that are visiting. Uh, we'd love for you to fill out a Connect card that's in the, the uh, little basket there in front of you, in the seat ahead of you. Um, or you can fill out our Bible app. A welcome to all of you that are watching online this morning. And again, if you would like to get more connected to Linworth Road, uh, that truly is the way by filling out that connect card. Um, again, on the, in the seat back or on the uh, Bible app. We're so glad you're here this morning. And we want you to experience God and to experience his love this morning by virtue of us gathering together as his church. Okay, I've got a few announcements um, this morning, one, um, next Sunday will be the official launching of a new Spanish service. Um, you've been watching our um, growing, our growing Hispanic ministry, and they really have a passion to reach other uh, Hispanics in our community, and therefore are really excited to uh, do a service in their own language. 
And so we're supportive of that. That's going to begin uh, with a very special event next Sunday. It'll start at 2.15. You are all invited to attend. Uh, there is a meal involved, so please, again, there's an RSVP there to Ezekiel Gonzalez to make sure you let us know if you're coming so they can plan ahead for food. Secondly, we really have had a marvelous response to the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality class. The materials today are available for pickup in the lobby. The cost is about, cost is $30 per person for the set. Please contact us if you are in need of financial help for that. Uh, it is important that you pick them up and to read the first chapter in the book before the first meeting. And again, as a reminder, the first meeting is Tuesday evening, February 22nd. Thirdly, we have uh, a men's breakfast coming up. It's been a while since our men have gathered that way. And, you know, these breakfasts and these kinds of uh, events serve to connect men across the church and to connect men across generations. So young and old, this is for all men 15 and older. Uh, you can register there. You can, you, you, uh, in your, the e-letter you received or on the Bible app, you can register online or you can write men's breakfast uh, on the, the comment or on the connect card as well to let us know if you're coming. The next two weeks will give you more specifics regarding the content of that time. Uh, fourthly, again, just remember, we're so excited that you're, you're able to give. With that giving, we're able to care for one another. We're able to meet all kinds of needs across the world and to give to the kingdom of God across the world. Um, Again, the e-letter included instructions on how to give. You can give online, you can give by check. There are several brown boxes in our lobby, and we appreciate all of you who are giving regularly to help the ministry of this church, both here and around the world. Now, lastly, before Nick comes up to uh, launch us into our first Kings series, I do have one sad piece of news to relate. And um, uh, last week, Pastor Dave was here and gave what an excellent message on grief. And certainly uh, we've learned that God meets us in all of our emotions, our joy, the things that we celebrate, but also the losses that we experience. Mary Stifler, Dave and Mary, Mary here in particular, has been a member of this church and connected to this community for over 40 years. And Mary, those of you who have been around that long, know Mary intimately, but some of you, really, most of you coming in the last 15, 20 years don't know Mary. Her medical condition has been such that she's been incapacitated for quite some time. And Mary uh, has suffered uh, in such a way that uh, most of us will not experience uh, in this life. And yet her faith, those of you that had a chance to serve her, um, many of you did. Uh, her faith, her resilience, her joy until the end was remarkable. Um, what Mary suffered was profound, and yet her life and her story is a testament to all of us. Dave, are you here? Dave, her husband, is here. Where are you? Where are you? David is back here, so you can be sure to greet David. And David sends his greetings as well. And David says he's doing well. He's... He's uh, rejoicing in the Lord. He knows that Mary, her suffering has ended. Mary's suffering has finally ended, really after, after many, many, many years. And so, but certainly he's grieving 
and we grieve and we mourn along with Dave. I especially, I know so many of you served um, Dave and Mary through the years, uh, taking groceries and um, helping out in so many ways. I want to particularly point out Harlan and Karen, if you're here, thank you, Harlan and Karen. And also Tim Donahue. Tim, are you here somewhere? Tim, right here. A, a special thank you to the three of you, uh, particularly serving on behalf of our deacon ministry, who for years have been the hands and feet of Jesus to Dave and Mary, but also in a lot of ways the hands and feet of this church in making sure that the needs of Dave and Mary have been met. So could we take a moment and bow our heads and thank the Father that he has received Mary into his kingdom. Father, we grieve this morning the loss of Mary, a daughter of yours, and one that brought you much joy through her life. But Lord, we don't grieve as those without hope. We believe in the resurrection. We believe the words of Jesus that I am the resurrection and the life. For us, Father, we say that these are not just nice sayings. They're not just uh, things that uh, uh, try to bolster up sad feelings, but we believe that Jesus rose from the dead in space and in time, and that therefore his promise, we can count on it. We can count on his promise. And we remember the words of the Apostle John that it is our faith that overcomes the world. And so, Father, even in our grief and in our mourning and in our sadness along with Dave and John and Tim, Father, we are glad that Mary is with you. We are glad that she is finally freed from decades of suffering, of physical suffering. And she now dances and sings and rejoices with a new voice in your presence. And Lord, we look forward to being reunited with her in a future day. I know we know that Dave does. We pray for Dave. We pray for John. We pray for Tim, that your grace, that your power, that your mercy, that your comfort would be so palpable, so evident to them, especially in these next few days, Lord. Lord, as I thought about this this morning and even Dave's message last week, Lord, so many this morning, I've even talked to several already, several different scenarios where people are in loss, uh, uh, they're, they're in grief, God, they've had profound losses in their life. We thank you again that you are the God of all comfort. And Father, may Linworth, may this body be a place where the life of Jesus, a repeat performance of his life is done through us, that we may be the hands and feet of Jesus to one another in, in putting on flesh and bringing flesh and bone to his spirit to bring comfort and kindness to one another. Lord, it's in your name we pray. We anticipate and even look forward now to worshiping you through responding and through learning 
your heart and your word. Your word is truth and your word is wisdom. Your word is sufficient for all we need. We thank you for it. Through Christ Jesus and his atoning sacrifice, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're doing well. Um, I am personally excited about tonight's game. Um, I haven't really cared about the Super Bowl or the NFL for quite some time now, um, really since I was a kid. But when I was a kid, I was a Bengals fan. Like I had that classic Halloween costume, that really thin helmet that if you thought was a real helmet, you'd get really hurt with. You know what I'm talking about? Because um, I was born in 1984, which was right between their two Super Bowl losses to the 49ers. And so it's been a long time coming, but we're back. And uh, hopefully we can, we can pull it off tonight. Well, as Chris said, um, we are starting a new series through the book of 1 Kings. And perhaps if, uh, if you're new with us, at first glance, that might seem like a pretty random book to teach through, right? Like not a lot of churches are doing sermon series on 1 Kings. But, but actually, as a church, we, uh, what we like to do here is we primarily teach through books of the Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testament. And we sort of have this rhythm of bouncing back and forth between the two testaments. And so several years ago, as a church, we taught through the book of Judges. And then when it was time to circle back to the Old Testament, we, we decided, well, let's just continue the story. So we taught through 1 Samuel. And then about a year later, we went to in, into 2 Samuel. And then, you know, COVID happened and lots of things got messed up. But, but here we are now, uh, many years later, circling back and wanting to continue on in the story of Israel's history. And so because of that, and because it's been a little while, there's some things I need to set up contextually uh, here at the beginning, both in terms of how to understand and interpret this book, but also in terms of where we left off in the story last time. Now, in terms of the type of literature, 1 Kings is somewhat of a blend between historical and narrative literature. It's historical in the sense that it, it is recounting Israel's history. These things really did happen but it's done so in a narrative or story form. And with that, it's by no means exhaustive because it's covering some 400 years of history and just over 50,000 words, which is obviously not, not very much. I mean, you just think about it, the US itself is not even close to 400 years old. And yet, can you imagine trying to retell our own nation's history in such a short book? And so what that means is that the author of Kings, um, which, which by the way, we have no idea who the author is. It, it could be one author or it could be uh, multiple or a group of authors working together. Um, but what we do know um, is that because of how uh, small the book is, given how much history there is, they were having to be very selective and careful in, in what they chose to include. And really what most commentators think is that whoever put this book together, they did so while being in exile themselves. And that the reason they wrote the book was in order to answer this one question. How did we end up here? In other words, how did God's chosen people, how did Israel, the, the apple of God's eye, end up in exile? And so that is the question that's really driving this book, and this book is trying to answer. And so again, it's not an exhaustive history of the nation of Israel during those 400 years, but it is answering this very important question. And so one of the things that all of this means is that the details of the story are really important and intentional. And so with that, it's important that you and I pay attention 
Because sometimes the, the narrator doesn't always come out and tell us directly or explicitly whether or not some action was right or wrong. But what they do do is they give us clues along the way by including details which point back to other parts of the Old Testament, which do let us know whether or not this or that action was godly or not. And so again, we, we have to pay attention. We have to uh, use other parts of scripture in order to understand what is going on in the passage. Now, in terms of the book structure, uh, one thing you need to understand is that originally, first and second Kings were one book, not two. Um, which is why some of you might feel frustrated when we finish this series um, because it's going to end very much in the middle of the story. And yet our hope and our plan is, is that when it's time to circle back to the Old Testament again, we'll pick things back up in 2 Kings and, and keep going in the story. Now, uh, the other thing you need to keep in mind is that the books of Samuel, which were also one book, First and 2 Samuel, and Kings, they are very much connected to each other. Much like how the book of Luke and Acts are connected, where, you know, this idea that one book picks up where the other one left off. And so because of that, and because it's been a while, let me just remind you of what happened at the end of 2 Samuel. So about halfway through 2 Samuel, uh, King David, he's, things are going well, he's, he's leading well, but then he has, uh, he majorly blows it. And he sleeps with Bathsheba, a married woman. Um, she becomes pregnant. He then has to try to cover this up. And so he hatches a plan to have her husband killed. God then uses a prophet named Nathan to confront David and to call him out for his sin. Um, fortunately, David does respond to that rebuke by repenting and confessing his sin. And God forgives him. But even still, there are some major consequences that happen in the aftermath. I mean, not only does the child that Bathsheba got pregnant with uh, pass away, but really his whole family at this point begins to fall apart. I mean, right after this incident, um, one of his own sons rapes his sister. And then a different son, uh, in response to that, kills that brother for that action. And then that, that, that same son who kills his brother, he then ends up uh, staging a political and military coup in order to overthrow his own father as king. And yet by the time that whole scene's over, he too ends up dead. And so David uh, is reinstated to the throne, but now two of his sons are dead. And he is certainly after all of this, a shell of the man that he used to be. And then if that wasn't bad enough, we, we come to the last chapter in 2 Samuel and David performs this census where he counts and numbers the people of Israel, which apparently he was not supposed to do. It was uh, it indicated some sort of lack of faith. And so the punishment or the consequence for that is that 70,000 Israelites end up dead. And that's how the book ends. And if you remember when Chris taught through that, that section, he compared 2 Samuel to this idea of a movie with a really bad ending, you know, which as Americans we hate, right? Because we always want that happy ending. We're not like the British, right? Like, I don't know how many British TV shows you watch. I watch a lot. They usually have really bad endings and they're depressing. So, but we're not like that, right? We want the Disney ending. But actually, as we'll see here in a minute, that wasn't quite the end of David's story because David's story doesn't officially end until 1 Kings chapter 2. And yet, unfortunately, in terms of the ending, things don't really get any better. And so that sort of brings us up to speed here. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings chapter 1. 
Um, if you need to use our pew Bibles, that's on page 279. And actually with this series, uh, we're going to go nine weeks here. I would encourage you uh, to, to really uh, look at a Bible, bring a Bible, um, use our pew Bibles, because uh, we're going to be covering large sections of text, and we're not going to try to put all of that up on the screen. And so it may be helpful if you have a Bible to, to look at and to follow along with. But before we dive in here, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity this morning to come together as a community, to come around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be glorified in and among us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would know and obey you. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as far as an outline this morning, we're gonna basically look at four main movements in the story. The first thing we're gonna see is a kingdom in crisis. The second thing we're gonna see is a much needed intervention. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at a dying man's last words, and then we'll finish up by looking at a kingdom firmly established. And so starting with this first movement here, a kingdom in crisis, let's pick it up in chapter one, verse one. It says this. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord, the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and they brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Okay, so what a really odd way to start a book, right? Like it's just this picture of a really pathetic looking King David. And what we find out here is that at this point in his life, he is old and he is cold. And even though his servants are trying their best to get him warm by putting extra clothes on him. It doesn't seem to be working. And so what they do is they come up with this really kind of bizarre idea of getting a human space heater or a human water bottle, if you're British, to try to keep him warm. Which look, you know, if we're just being honest about this, uh, being cold and unable to get warm is really no joke at all. It's miserable. I mean, just a couple months ago, I had uh, the unfortunate experience of getting that, that one little virus that's going around town here. And uh, I had two nights in a row where I woke up shivering and shaking so hard that I actually was causing our bed to shake. Like I woke my wife up like, what's wrong with you? And I'm just like, you know, I, I can't get warm. And so I got out of bed, I put on, you know, like a sweatsuit and put five blankets on my bed, took some medicine and, and eventually I got warm. But for those 30 minutes, it was miserable. I'm um, not only that, you know, just a warning. If you feel like God's calling you into ministry and specifically preaching, you got to be careful because I don't know. It just it, it's very often that before I teach a text, God makes me live it first. And so on uh, Thursday night or Thursday evening, I came home from work and our uh, furnace went out. And uh, they couldn't, couldn't get somebody until the next day. And so Thursday night got quite cold in our house. And so I know what it's like to be cold and it's no fun. So we're, we can empathize. We can understand why 
why of what's going on with David here. But on the other hand, we read this and we feel sorry for him. But on the other hand, we're, it's like, this is pretty strange, right? I mean, why does he need a beautiful young woman in order to keep him warm? I mean, doesn't David already have multiple wives? Why, why couldn't one of them do it or just throw them all in bed with him, right? Like, that's a lot of body heat. I mean, if the goal was really just to get him warm, why does she need to be young and why does she need to be beautiful? You know, I was thinking about, this is terrible. I don't know how many of you watched uh, Dalton Abbey, but you know, someone like Miss Patmore, the cook, could do a really good job at keeping someone warm. So what's going on here? Well, what some commentators think is that this was some kind of virility test where they were trying to find out if David was still up for it, if he was still able to lead the nation. I mean, this is kind of like us today in our own country where you have some people in the country calling for Biden to take a cognitive test. But apparently in the ancient world, their standards for leadership weren't around cognition or mental agility, but it was more around if you were still sexually able or interested. And if not, that meant that you were not fit to lead anymore, which is why it's so significant there that it tells us at the end of verse four that David knew her not. So in other words, what we see here is that David failed the test. He is not, according to their standards, fit for leadership. And so what happens next? We'll look at verse five. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by saying, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Reah, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Okay, so I told you earlier that two of David's sons are dead. And actually, many think that a third son named Kiliab was also dead at this point. And so his fourth son, who is now the oldest remaining one, Adonijah, he begins to take matters into his own hands. And what he does is he gathers some important people around him, um, some important people and leaders in the kingdom, and he declares himself to be king. And so really what we see here is that David has just completely checked out of things. He's being passive. He's being apathetic. He is not leading well. Not only is he letting others kind of question and test his ability to lead, but he also appears to be just locked away in his room. And therefore, he has no idea of the things that are happening in his kingdom or even with his own family or other leaders. And so behind his back, you have his son, the, the priest, his top military official, all working and plotting behind his back. Um, and here he is just holed up in his room with his beautiful space heater, just trying to get warm. I mean, this is a far cry from the man who took on Goliath, the man who fought many battles on behalf of Yahweh. This is a far cry from the man who danced his heart out before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was coming back in to Jerusalem. 
No, this is a passive and apathetic leader who is not finishing well. And unfortunately, we learn here in verse six that his passiveness played out in his parenting as well. Because again, it just said there that David never disciplined or displeased his son. Now, I don't know about you, but as a parent, I find that so shocking and not just shocking, but hard to imagine. I mean, how is that possible? And it's particularly shocking given the fact that in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of his sons would sit on his throne and that they would build a house for the Lord. And so in light of that promise, that covenant, you would think that David would have been very intentional about disciplining and discipling and preparing his sons to succeed him. And you would have thought he would even have made sure that all of this was lined up before he was too old or before he died. And yet it's obvious that David has not done that. And so again, what we see here in these first 10 uh, verses is that David is not in a good place. And because he's not in a good place, the kingdom is not in a good place. In fact, I would argue it's in a moment of crisis, which brings us to our second movement in the story, and that is a much needed intervention. Look at verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my Lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. Okay, so I've already mentioned these two characters earlier, Nathan and Bathsheba, when I was setting the context for 1 Kings. But again, just to, to, to remind you here, in 2 Samuel, what we see is David commits adultery with this lady, Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. Her, uh, David has her husband killed. And then he takes her as his wife. Now, again, as I already said, they do end up losing that baby. But later on, she does go on to have another child with David, and his name is Solomon. And so that's who she is. But the thing that's a little interesting here is that the Nathan mentioned in this passage is the same Nathan who rebuked David in 2 Samuel for having the affair with Bathsheba. And yet now here we have them working together in order to save uh, their own lives, but also to rescue David from his apathy and his unawareness and to make sure that the right person ends up on the throne. And so they hatch this plan together. In verse 15, we see that Bathsheba goes into David's bedroom, uh, which had to be awkward, right? Because Abishag's in there with him. But then David asks Bathsheba, what, what do you want? What do you desire? And then Bathsheba reminds him that he swore to her that Solomon would reign after him. And then she begins to relay all of this information to him about what has been going on in the kingdom with Adonijah and Joab and Abathar. And then she puts kind of a few zingers in there. She's like, you know, that would have hurt David's pride. And she's like, you know, and you don't even know what's going on. You, you don't even know it. In other words, David, you're so out of it. You don't even know what's going on in your own kingdom. She also tells him that all the eyes of Israel are on him to see what he will do and who will be king after him. 
In other words, she's kind of pointing out that, that David, you're being kind of pathetic. You're, you're being passive. You're being apathetic. You're holed up in this room. Meanwhile, the kingdom is falling apart. And yet, because you're still king, Israel is looking to you to see what will happen. And so while she's saying all of this, verse 22 tells us that Nathan comes in to talk to the king. And he basically tells her the same information, uh, the stuff going on with Adonijah um, that, that Bathsheba told him. And then he asked him point blank. He's like, is this from you? Did you do this? Are you the one who, who let Adonijah become king? And then in verse 28, we read this. Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Okay, so what we see here is that uh, Nathan and Bathsheba's plan does work. David finally wakes up. He gets out of this apathetic funk that he's been in, and he goes from being passive to decisive. He tells his men to take Solomon and to anoint him as king of Israel, which we see them do in verses 38 through 40. But then in verse 41, the, the scene shifts back to this party with Adonijah, this party that he was having for himself um, and, and making himself king. But what we see there is that the party has kind of come to a grinding halt because all of a sudden they hear this trumpet blast and then this guy named Jonathan, who was one of Abiathar's sons, shows up. And Adonijah's like, well, he's a good guy. Surely he'll bring us good news. And Jonathan's like, nope, actually, I came to tell you that your dad just made Solomon king. And that all the guys that you didn't invite to this little party that you're having, they were all a part of it. And then we get this great little verse in verse 49, which simply says, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. I mean, this is kind of like uh, when the cops show up to that wild college party you were at and, and you just sort of slip out the back door and pretend like, well, what's going on here? I, I, you know, not that any of you have done that, but I'm sure you can imagine the movies, things like that, right? Like the party is definitely over. And not only do the guests realize the party's over, but so does Adonijah, because we're told in verse 50 that he begins to fear Solomon. And so to save himself, he runs to the tabernacle, he grabs the horns of the altar, and he pleads with Solomon to show him mercy. And as the chapter plays out, we see Solomon uh, consents to not hurt him as long as he shows himself worthy. In other words, as long as he submits to Solomon's reign and doesn't cause any more trouble, then he won't be hurt. 
And then we see the chapter end with Solomon telling Adonijah to go home. In other words, he's kind of sending him to his room. He's like, you get out of here, you go home. And so this, through this necessary intervention, the kingdom goes from being in crisis to being somewhat stabilized again. And so let's go to that third movement in the story, which will bring us into chapter two. And that is a dying man's last words. Look at verse one. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and keeping his statues, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention in their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Okay, so David is at the end of his life here and he's giving his son Solomon some final advice, some final commands even. And what we see him tell Solomon here in these first four verses is actually really quite amazing. I mean, he's basically telling Solomon to be faithful to Yahweh, to be faithful to the Lord, to keep his rules and his commands, to obey the Mosaic law. He also seems to be relaying some of the terms of the covenant that God made with David back in 2 Samuel 7, when when God promised to have one of his sons reign on the throne forever if they remain faithful. And so again, we evaluate these first four verses and it's great. This is about as good of advice and commands you could give to one of your kids as you were dying. And if I'm being honest, I I sort of wish David would have just died right there. But unfortunately, he keeps talking. And in verse five, he goes on to say this. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Brazilia, the Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother." And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite of Baharam, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day I went to Maharaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol." Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 30 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. And we don't really have time to get into the details of all these different people and situations that are mentioned here. But basically what David's doing is he's asking Solomon to carry out a kind of hit list for him. I mean, Joab, who is mentioned here first, was David's right-hand man. He was the head of the military. 
And Joab was definitely a, a complicated man. He was a, a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, he could be brutal and vicious, but on the other hand, he was, he was for the most part loyal to David. And he did much of David's dirty work for him, really without questioning it. And the part that's troubling here is that if Joab really was guilty and worthy of death, then David should have done it himself. Instead, he continued to use Joab and therefore he was delaying justice. I mean, if he would have dealt with Joab after the Abner incident, then Amasa wouldn't have died. Not only that, but also most likely his son Absalom would not have died either. And so again, if Joab really did deserve death and he deserved to be dealt with, which I'm not totally sure he did, but if he did, then David should have done it himself instead of passing this on to his son. And then if that wasn't bad enough, he goes on to tell him, deal with Shimei, the, the guy who back in 2 Samuel 16, cursed David and his men and even threw rocks at them as they fled Jerusalem uh, when they were trying to get away from Absalom. And at that point, when that happened, David's men were like, please let us kill him. Can we kill him? And, and David's like, no, maybe God told Shimei to do that. I, I deserve this. And so leave him alone. And then later on uh, in the book, when David returns to Jerusalem after he's reinstated as king, uh, David, uh, his men, they see Shimei, and again, they ask if they can kill him. And David again says no, and, and he even goes farther, and he makes an oath with Shimei where he tells him, you shall not die. So again, all that to say, David's last words here are, are kind of a mixed bag themselves. On the one hand, he's giving his son some wonderful, godly advice and counsel about following Yahweh, about keeping the law. And yet on the other hand, he's trying to convince him to kill all of his old enemies. And so that's how David goes out. These are his last words, words that are full of vengeance and violence. And so what happens next? Well, that brings us to the last movement in our story, and that is a kingdom firmly established. Now we just read that language of a kingdom being firmly established at the end of verse 12. But that kind of uh, language will go on to be repeated three other times in the rest of the chapter. And when it comes to the Bible, it is, uh, especially with narrative literature, repetition indicates importance. It's almost like someone winking at you in a conversation. It's, you're, you're supposed to pay attention. So David dies, we're told that Solomon sat on his throne, that his kingdom is now firmly established. Then in verse 13, we get this weird scene where Adonijah approaches Bathsheba and he asks her to go to Solomon on his behalf um, in order to ask if he can have that, that beautiful space eater for himself, Abishag. He wants to take her as his wife. Now, it could have just been that Adonijah was just extremely attracted and in love with her, um, with his dad's old concubine. I mean, we are told that she was beautiful. Or it could be, as like what most commentators think, that this was just another ploy from Adonijah to take the throne. And the reason commentators say that is because, number one, that's how Solomon himself interprets the request, as we'll see here in just a minute. But also, the other reason they say that is because in the ancient world, taking the wife of a previous king was tantamount to taking the king's authority and power. I mean, we saw that in 2 Samuel when Absalom slept with David's concubines. And if you remember at the end of the chapter one, how Solomon left things with Adonijah, he basically said, look, bro, you better, you better be on your best behavior. You better not cause me any trouble or else. 
And so what we're going to see here is things don't go well for him. Verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for the kingdom also. For he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. So Solomon doesn't mess around here. He interprets his brother's request as a threat to, the, to his throne, and he orders him to be killed. From there, we see Solomon uh, in the next couple of verses go on to deal with Abiathar the priest, the one who sided with Adonijah. Solomon tells him that he deserves to die, but that because of his uh, previous faithfulness to, to David and because of the fact that he was a priest who carried the ark of God, um, he's going to let him live, but he does end up getting dismissed uh, from his role as a priest. Next, Solomon moves on to deal with Joab. Like Adonijah, Joab runs into the tabernacle. He grabs the horns of the altar. But this time, instead of being shown mercy, instead of being spared, Solomon orders Benaiah to strike Joab down and kill him. After that, he moves on to target Shimei. And he calls Shimei to himself. He basically puts him on house arrest. He makes Shimei leave his own house in the region of Benjamin. And he has him instead build a new house inside of Jerusalem. That way he could keep an eye on him. He then tells him that he can't leave Jerusalem. And in particular, he tells him, if you cross the Kildron Valley, uh, which would have taken him back to where he was from, that he, he would die. And so Shimei agrees to the terms of, of this, although it's not like he had much of a choice. And so with that, things are going well for a while. But then we're told here that three years uh, later, some of Shimei's servants escape. They run off. They go into the land of the Philistines. And so Shimei follows after them. And Solomon gets word that Shimei left Jerusalem and he has him killed as a result of that. And then at the, the chapter ends with this sentence. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And so again, the point is clear here that Solomon's kingdom is now firmly established in his hands. But what is not so clear is whether or not David's last instructions nor Solomon's actions here were godly. You see, some commentators argue that this was necessary and, and yes, it's unfortunate that there was so much bloodshed, but really, you know, those, those people deserved it. And Solomon had to do this in order to remove his enemies so that he could reign unhindered. And on the one hand, I, I think you could argue that uh, position Certainly, there's maybe an aspect where that might be true. But on the other hand, when you look at this section, what you see is that it really lacks any interaction between Solomon and the Lord. 
Certainly Solomon invokes the name of the Lord as a means of justification for what he's doing, but we don't see him pray here. We don't see him get any godly counsel. It's not like he goes to Nathan the prophet or to Zadok the priest and, and it's like, hey, should I do this? Should I not do this? No, instead what we see him doing is relying on his own strength and his own wisdom. Now again, I acknowledge that this is tricky and in some ways it's far from black and white. But as we analyze the end of David's life and as we look at the beginning of Solomon's reign, I tend to agree with what commentator Ian Proven said when he, when he summarized this section by writing this. What we have here, in fact, is a fairly sordid story of power politics, thinly disguised as a morality tale. So tortured are the attempts to convince us that the men who died did so because they deserved it. However, that we cannot be but aware of their speciousness. Technically, they may have been guilty, but is morality entirely a matter of technicalities? Surely not. And we are, thus, we are thus faced with the question as to whether David's dynasty is really any more innocent of blood now than it has been in the past or will be in the future. If God has truly ordained that Solomon should be king and have a dynasty, then it is not, as Solomon implies, because David's house is innocent, but rather, the authors seem to be telling us, because God's grace is sufficient to deal with their guilt. Without grace, law can ever lead mortal beings, be they kings or not, only to disaster. And so as we think about uh, this, and as we think about these first two chapters in this book, what lessons or insights do they show us some 3,000 years later? Well, there's probably quite a few things that we could draw out from the story, but, but the one thing that stood out to me, or the thing that impacted me the most this week, and the thing I want to challenge us with here this morning is this, that you and I would make a commitment and do whatever it takes to finish well. You see, again, no matter how you cut it, there's no getting around the fact that David did not finish well. He started out great, but he did not end great. He started out strong, but he ended weak. You see, like I said earlier, after his uh, major moral failing with Bathsheba, he never really recovered his zeal and his passion for the Lord. No, instead, what we see is that he seems to have grown passive and apathetic and, and even more closed off from community, good community. You see, instead of learning from his mistakes and teaching his sons to follow a different path, he instead becomes passive and, and really fails as a parent. Instead of letting the mercy and the forgiveness uh, that he received from the Lord inspire him to show others the same, instead, he uses his last breath on earth to give his son a hit list. You see, as someone who is younger, I've, I've noticed that it's all too common for Christians as they get older to not always finish well. Now, what I mean by that is it's not that necessarily a bunch of people end up blowing up their life with, with some kind of morality scandal or, or that they walk away from the faith, although, as we all know, both of those things do happen. But instead, what I feel like happens more often is that people just end up becoming kind of apathetic. They end up becoming indifferent in their faith. They stop growing. Their sanctification and their pursuit to becoming more like Jesus just kind of stalls out, it, it flatlines. 
Things that they struggled with in their 20s and 30s, they're still struggling with in their 60s and 70s. Now for others, it's not so much that they've personally stopped pursuing Jesus or trying to grow in their character, but instead of trying to invest in the next generation and pass those things on to them, they instead, like David, they, they maybe let past failures or maybe they let their insecurities keep them closed off. And so maybe someone younger approaches them and, and asks, hey, will you mentor me? Will you disciple me? Will you share the wisdom that you've gained in life? They, they end up saying no. They just say, it's not a good time for me. They, I'm busy or, or whatever it is. And often I think the reason is because maybe in their own minds, they just think, well, you know, I, I blew it. I, I didn't, I'm not, I, things didn't work out like I thought they would. You know, I thought I was going to, you know, go plant a church or be a missionary over here or do all that. And, and life has just not quite turned out that way. Or, you know, I was, I, I thought I did a good job parenting my kids, but here they are. They're not following the Lord. And so what do I have to offer someone who's younger? And yet the truth is you have a lot to offer. And not only do you have a lot to offer, but younger believers are, are hungry for this. They long to be discipled and mentored by older believers. I mean, again, as someone who's younger myself, I, we, we, do, we don't need you older saints to be perfect or to never make a mistake. But what we do need is to see you fight for holiness. We do need to see you never stop growing and pursuing Jesus. We do need to see you be humble and admit when you were wrong or when you make a mistake. But again, if, if you're honest and you're vulnerable in that, that'll only cause us to respect you more. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but obviously last week was so powerful. But the thing that I think made it powerful was not that Dave went through all of that tragedy unscathed or, or without wrestling with doubt. But what made it powerful was that he was honest and vulnerable in his own pain and in his doubts and in his struggle. I mean, I don't think any of us walked away thinking, man, you know, I just can't believe that a pastor would ever doubt God's goodness after all of that. No, of course not. Instead, I think we all walked away thinking, wow, what a hard story. And man, I'm so thankful that Dave was honest and vulnerable about how that impacted and challenged him. And look, I know I may seem like I'm primarily addressing those of us who are older, but, but look, when it comes to those of us who are younger, I want to ask you this. Are you doing the things you need to do today in order to make sure that you're going to finish strong tomorrow or down the road? In other words, if you are not growing and, and going hard after Jesus now and actively pursuing growing in your character and, and things like that, then what makes you think as you get older that this will just naturally happen? Because I can assure you, it will not. None of us default into holiness. I mean, we do in an ultimate sense when we see Jesus, right? Like then we'll be made perfect. But in terms of in this life, sanctification is a pursuit. It takes effort. It takes intention. And we do pursue it by depending on Jesus. It's not something we do in our own strength. We don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we do do it by being independent or not by, by being dependent on him, by not being independent, by walking in the spirit, by doing life deeply with those in our community who are also going after the same goal. And so again, I'm not just challenging older saints to finish well. I'm challenging those of us who are younger to commit to this too. And so this week, I just want to encourage you to take some time to get alone with the Lord 
and to ask the Holy Spirit the question, am I on track to finish well? You know, I remember Chris years ago talking about this idea of drift. And, you know, if you thought about a boat like headed towards, you know, going from New York to England, and if a boat just got off just a couple clicks, a couple degrees, by the time they make it that far, you, you know, you might be in Africa or something, right? Like you're trying to go to England, but you might be in Africa. And drifting, it happens so easy. And so I think it'd be good for us to take some time this week to do a heart check to see, Lord, am I drifting? Am I on track to finish well? And if the answer is no, it's better to face that honestly and to, to deal with it now than to wake up one day and realize you're far from God and that you're at the end of your life and you're not finishing well. You know, Dr. Robert Clinton, uh, a, a well-known professor who was a, a professor of leadership at Fuller Seminary, um, he wrote lots of, of books on leadership that have been really helpful in the kingdom, but he wrote this article several years ago where he argued that 70% of leaders don't finish well. But for the ones that do finish well, he noticed these six common traits among them. And so let me share these with you now. Number one, he noticed that they maintained a personal, vibrant relationship with God right up until the end. In other words, the, those leaders who finished well, they never stopped pursuing Jesus. Number two, he noticed that they maintained a learning posture and were able to learn from various kinds of sources, especially those life lessons. In other words, they didn't let pride get in the way and make them think, you know, I've I know, I know what I'm doing now. I can just sort of coast. No, they never stopped learning. They were humble. They were teachable. Number three, they manifested Christ-likeness in their character as evidenced by the fruit of their lives. In other words, these individuals really did care about holiness. They really did want to become more like Jesus. They weren't still struggling with things from their 20s and 30s when they're in their 60s and 70s. No, they were pursuing character growth. And you could see evidence of that in their life. Fourthly, truth was lived out in their lives so that convictions and the promises of God were real to them. They formed convictions based on the word of God and they lived those out. And if they made mistakes, they repented and got back on their feet. They believed in the promises of God. Number five, they left behind one or more ultimate contributions. In other words, there were things that they did that lived beyond them, whether that was investing in the next generation and discipling others, or whether that was starting a new work, planning a church, you know, something like that or maybe writing a book or articles or whatever it was, they had ultimate contributions that went beyond them. And then finally, they walked with a growing awareness of a sense of destiny, and they came to see all or some of it fulfilled. I mean, that's, you know, that makes me think of Paul, who when he came to the end of his life, you know, Paul had a clear mission of his destiny, of what God called him to do, namely to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And, you know, Paul's life, yes, he had a lot of struggles at the end. There were leadership things that were a challenge. Just look at 2 Corinthians or even in the Timothys. But even still with that, Paul could see how God had used him. And he was seeing how that, that, that destiny that God had called him to was being fulfilled. That's why he could come to the end of his life and say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so again, maybe you and I will want to take some time this week to evaluate ourselves, perhaps even look at this list of six, and I could send you the article if you're interested. 
But look, the reality is, is we only get one life. We only get one shot at it. And so let's commit. Let's make sure that we finish well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I don't know about my friends here, but God, my heart is to finish well. God, to like Caleb, to be at the end of his life, taking another hill. And Lord, I just acknowledge none of us can do that apart from you. And so, Father, I just pray you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would not only give us the desire to finish well, but you'd give us the power to do it as well. We need you, Lord. As the, as the hymn says, we need thee every hour. And so, Lord, would you meet us? God, if, if there are blind spots in our lives, if, the, if we are in the midst of drifting, Lord, I pray that you, by the Spirit, would correct us. God, you would help others speak into that and show us the steps we need to take in order to get back on track. And so we ask for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. You know, we talked this morning about a leader, a, a man named David who didn't finish well. But you know, uh, this week I was actually thinking about another leader who also had a moment in his life where he really blew it, and that was Peter. But the thing about that story, though, is Jesus meets with Peter. And if you remember that scene at the end of the book of John where they're on the beach and, and Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? It's such an amazing scene. I mean, when you really think about that story, Jesus meets him back on the beach. He, he uh, takes him back to where he first called him. He has him do the throw the net on the other side, hauls on the fish. I love that moment because then Peter's like, it's the Lord. You know, he's like, that's the Lord. And he goes running in uh, to meet him. And Jesus redeems him. He restores him. And so I don't know if there's some of you maybe here today who maybe you feel like you've blown it. Maybe you just feel like, you know what, like I'm not totally giving up on Jesus, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pack it in. I'm just gonna keep my head down and try to hang on. But that's not what the Lord wants for you. You know, Peter could have done that. He talked about, I'm gonna go back to fishing, right? Like, I don't think he was totally gonna give up on the Lord, but I don't think he wanted to, to do what God had for him. And yet Jesus met him on that beach and he restored him and Peter went on to do great things in the kingdom. And I, maybe there's some of you in here who feel like that. And I just wanna give you hope. God has great things that he wants you to do in the kingdom, but you need to come and you need to confess and to meet with him and to ask him to, to do that. And so there'll be members of our prayer team down here. I'll be down here. I would encourage you to do that. Again, we only get one shot. You know, I, I love that, that book by Piper. Don't waste your life. Let's not waste our lives, right? Let's go hard after Jesus and, and, and be a part of what it is he wants to do in this earth. And so let's close now with a final blessing. Um, I love this blessing. There used to be an old Great Commission song based on it. It's Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.